The reason we go is not to build wells, to dig wells, to, to bring relief from the difficulty of life there. Although there's nothing wrong with, with humanitarian mission, please don't hear me saying that. The reason we go is to proclaim the gospel, and we go to proclaim the gospel because they face a problem. But it's the same exact problem that we face here. As different as our lives are from from those people who are living in Africa, as different as our circumstances are, there's one chief problem that we all share. That problem is sin. This isn't popular to talk about. It's not like, you're, not like anybody's going out on television and trying to gain a following by talking about our sin. But it is a problem that, if left unattended, is absolutely destructive. It destroys, it ruins us. And, and, and the reality is, is that you, you can't go and you can't find some as-seen-on-TV product. There's no, no infomercial in the middle of the night that's going to tell you how to deal with this problem of sin. And there's, there's, there's no self-help book that you can turn to that can help you look into yourself and find power to deal with this problem of sin. And as much bad news as they like to, to report MSNBC, CNN, and Fox, they're not talking about this problem. They're not helping us find an answer to this problem of sin. To our problem is that in our sin, we have earned the curse of God. The Bible doesn't pull any punches about this. This is where the story starts in, many, in, in large part. He created. Everything was in harmony, and we rebelled. We sinned and earned His curse. And the Bible pulls no punches about that. The, the message of the Scripture is that no one seeks God. No one is righteous. No, not one. And in the original language, that would be absolutely nobody. Nobody is righteous. We are all sinners. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. Some of us seek to deny it, and some of us seek to overcome it ourselves. Those who deny it are pretenders. They seek to convince themselves by lying to themselves that, it, that it's just not true, that I'm not really that bad, that I, I really am not that bad of a person. I'm really kind of good. And, and they like to pretend. And they prop up this, this, this imaginary world that they live in by, by looking around and picking out all the evil people that they are better than. I'm not really that bad. Hitler makes any of us look good. Charles Manson makes any of us look good. We pretend. And those who overcome it are performers. You see, they're willing to admit that they're a sinner. They're willing to say, yes, I sin. But in some way, they think that they can muster up enough willpower to be good and do enough good that they would actually earn their position before God, that they would actually deserve to be in his presence. And so they develop these lists. They develop these ways of living. They develop these laws to live by. Some of them use God's law, the Ten Commandments. I don't, I don't cheat. I don't, I don't lie. I don't steal. I don't, I don't envy my neighbor, the things of my neighbor. I don't, I don't. I don't murder people. I'm not committing adultery. I must be a good person. Well, some of us have decided that that's not even enough and that, that, that to be a good person, we must 
Christianize our, our lists, our laws that we follow. And so we develop laws that say, I, I, I read my Bible every day. I spend time praying every day. I'm involved in every church event. I must be good. I must deserve to be here. I've done enough that God can now accept me. And we perform. The problem with performing is that performers don't ever stop at themselves. They build these laws for themselves. They build these lists for themselves. They, they, they make themselves feel good about the things that they do. And then they turn around and they apply those lists to other people. And they say, if you're going to be good, you must be like me. You, you, must, you must live like I live. You must do what I do. You must, you must look like I look. And they do that because it helps them pretend that they're better than they really are. In some way, every person in this room is a pretender and a performer. But the Bible has not let us stay there. You see, it's not pulling any punches. Because let's call it what it really is. Pretending and performing is simply self-righteousness, and self-righteousness is simply sin. Here's the thing. We are not left without hope nor help. His name is Jesus. If we were left to ourselves, we would be undone. All we could do is pretend and perform. But Jesus has come and Jesus loves sinners like you and like me. And he has come to graciously call us and others through us into his eternal salvation. He is our hope. He is our help. And as we read today, that's precisely what we see as Luke recounts Jesus calling a sinner named Matthew or Levi, as we'll hear him call today. Precisely what Luke, we see as Luke recounts a sinner called Matthew being called to follow Jesus. And we'll see how Matthew can't help but naturally connect Jesus to other sinners that need to know of his hope and his help. We're going to be in Luke chapter 5, verses 27 through 32. It's in eight, on page 861 in the Bible's. In your chair, you're welcome to follow along there. Let's read God's word and see our hope and help. After this, now this is kind of a, this sets us in the context. After, after what? Jesus had just healed a, a paralyzed man. He had just empowered a man to stand up and walk. A man who had to be carried into a house, who had to be lowered down unto, uh, to Jesus through the roof. A man who had no power to bring himself there, who had been carried there. After this moment where Jesus healed him, proving to the, testament, to the, to the teachers of the Ten Commandments, the teachers of the law, proving to them that he not only had power to heal, but he had authority to forgive sins. After this moment, he went out from the house. He went out and he saw a tax collector named Levi, that's Matthew, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. 
And leaving everything, he rose and he followed him. And, and Levi made a, him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at, the, at his disciples saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? I think it's important you notice that they didn't approach Jesus and ask. They approached his disciples. Almost as if to undermine Jesus. Almost as if to sow discord among Jesus' people. But Jesus is the one that answers them. And he says this, that Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. It's a powerful moment. Jesus has just demonstrated through his powerful healing of a paralytic man that he is powerful, that he is able and has authority to forgive sins. And now he puts it into practice. He walks out into this village, this, this, this city of Capernaum. He walks out into the city. He sees a tax collector who would have been seen as a, as a sinful man. And he says, come and follow me. Well, Levi is not the first person that we've seen Jesus call to follow him. You know, if you remember Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, we studied it a few weeks before Easter. If you remember, he had called some fishermen to follow him. They had gone out into the boat. They had, they had caught a miraculous catch, and, and, and so, so much so that their nets were breaking and their boats were sinking. And they come back to the shore. They get back to the shore, and they've got this miraculous catch, and Jesus says, come and follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. And they leave it all. They leave the wealth that's there. They leave the opportunity that's there. And they leave it all and they follow Jesus. Peter, Andrew, James, and John. But even as miraculous, as, even as powerful, even as special as that moment was, there's some distinctions I think that we should call out here. See, those fishermen, they would have been poor. But Matthew would have been wealthy. So the Romans would determine the tax rate for a particular area. They would have gone into Capernaum or they would have gone into uh, the region of Galilee and they would have said, okay, this is what we need for taxes here. And then they would begin to sell off the right to take taxes on their behalf. They would bid it out and, and people would bid for it and whoever won the bid would be the tax collector and they would be able to, they would be able to, to hire people to work for them and these, these people that were hired would, would sit in tax booths. But here, here's the thing. No one told these tax collectors how much to... To, to take except the Romans. And the Romans didn't cap it. They just said, you got to get at least this much. So if they wanted $100, they said, oh, you got to get us $100. But the tax, collector could then, he, the, the tax collector could then charge $150 or $200. And everything that was over and above what the Romans wanted was the tax collectors to keep. And the tax collectors became very wealthy. They became affluent. They, be, they, they had stuff at the expense of their own people. The fishermen left everything behind, but could have been fishing at a moment's notice had everything fallen apart. But Matthew's job would have been gone. For Matthew to follow Jesus, there was a decisive action that had to be taken. He had to be willing to give up everything. The reality is the Romans were not going to quit taking taxes just because the tax collector left. They want their money. 
And the reality is, is that Matthew's not the only one willing, the, the only one that loves money enough to, to be a traitor to his people and to excise taxes on them. Matthew's not the only one that would have done that. that. The seat, the tax collector's booth would have been filled in short order and someone else would have been sitting there taking those taxes. But Matthew would have not had an opportunity to go back. This was, this was a permanent decision. Something that he was giving up in order to follow Jesus. What must have he seen in Jesus to walk away from everything? To make such a decisive action? Well, the fishermen were probably basically moral people. But Matthew was considered one of the worst of sinners. You know, it wasn't like the, the, the fishermen. They weren't people who the rabbis were going to search out, and they were, all the rabbis were going to, to, to the shore and looking for fishermen to come and sit in their classes. It's not like they were the cream of the crop. It's not like they were, they were, they were the ones that were being pursued to, to have in their classes and who were being raised up to be other rabbis or new rabbis. They, that's not who the fishermen were, but basically they would have been likely been moral people. They would have been good Jewish people. But Matthew was viewed with disdain. In fact, in the way of perceiving it, just in the way of grading it, he probably would have been one of the most sinful, he would have been considered to be one of the most sinful people in in the area. The only people that they might have viewed as more sinful would have been maybe like prostitutes. And so there's tax collectors and prostitutes. That's how they would have viewed it. That's how they would have graded it. And here here this man is, and Jesus sees him. Jesus goes to him. And Jesus calls him to follow. The intent of pointing out these distinctions is, is not simply so that we can see how bad Matthew is or how, how, how needy he is. The intent is to point out the vast array of people that Jesus has come to seek and to save. It, it says in, in Luke chapter 4 that he came preaching good news to the poor, the, the oppressed, and, and, and the captives, and, and, and the blind. And, and so in our mind, we, we begin looking, we, 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 we tend to begin to look for all the physical need. And if they got physical need, then they must, they must need Jesus. And we begin to equate the, the, the difficulties of life with a need for salvation. And please don't hear me that we shouldn't be doing humanitarian services and humanitarian missions. Please do not. Please do not read that into what I'm saying, but simply understand this, that that as desperate as the blind man needs to be able to see, as desperate as the poor man needs help to buy food, as desperate as the captive needs to be freed and the oppressed needs to be released, is the reality of what wealth and what, what, what affluence and what sin does to every person, regardless of station and regardless of ability in this life. Matthew, who is a wealthy man, who is an affluent man, was as needy of salvation as the pauper. Just to put this in perspective, the people who live in Prairie View Heights are no less needy of salvation than the people on the north side of the city. Everyone has a problem. Our chief problem is sin, and the only answer is Jesus. Jesus sees this man, this sinful man. He calls him to follow, and Matthew leaves everything. 
And I've heard some people talk about, well, man, it would be great if we had the same kind of power that Jesus had and we could just walk up to somebody and, and, and they, would just, they would just hear us say, hey, come follow Jesus, and immediately they'd leave everything behind. And I, I don't even think that's what happened with Matthew. I don't think that Jesus worked some voodoo magic and made Matthew believe without having some education and some knowledge of who he was. This was Capernaum. This was Jesus' home base. This is where Jesus was working powerful miracles, teaching with authority in their synagogues. This was the place where where when, when they brought all the sick people to him, he healed them all. There was a point in time, a point in their life in Capernaum, which there was no sick people at all in the city. This was the place where Jesus, when they brought all the demon-possessed people to them, he cast out the demons. There was a point in time in the life of the city in which no one had any type of demon possession because God, Jesus, had rebuked them and sent them out. This was the place from which His reputation had begun to spread across all of Galilee. This is the place where where they understood that he was teaching with authority. This is the place where they understood that he was powerful to work miracles. This was the place where people were gathering and filling a house so full that no one else could get to him. This place, I, I, I think it would be shocking to find out that if there was even one person who lived in this city who had no understanding or no knowledge or didn't know Jesus by sight. Certainly, Matthew only came because Jesus called. But Matthew had knowledge. Matthew wasn't walking in blind faith. Jesus had given him opportunity to know him. And when Jesus walked up to him, I don't think it was that Matthew was like, oh, all in this, all in this difficult place. I, I think more, more than that, he knew Jesus. He knew what Jesus was about. He knew what Jesus was capable of. And it wasn't a choice of whether or not he should follow. It was more about a shock and a surprise and admiration and an awe that he was being called by this man, Jesus. He was amazed that God, that Jesus had called him to follow. If it would have been shocking for for fishermen to be called by Jesus. If if the people of that day would have been surprised that Jesus would call someone like fishermen, you can be certain they would have been surprised when Jesus called a tax collector. Because in their mind, tax collectors were so unworthy. They were viewed with disdain. they, They weren't allowed in the synagogue. Their testimony was not allowed in the court. But here they were. Here was Jesus looking at this man and saying, come and follow me. And in amazement, Matthew left it all. Everything that he might follow Jesus. When was the last time you were this amazed by Jesus calling you to follow him? When was the last time that you were filled with admiration and awe because you, you of all people, have been called to follow Jesus. I find myself confronted with this in my own heart from time to time. I mean, probably, probably not nearly enough. But as we worked in Africa, I found myself confronted with it over and over again. As I watched a man who has undergone levels of persecution because of his confession of faith be willing to be baptized and 
publicly testify that he was a believer. As I saw that same man take his first communion, as I listened to a woman who was one of the, the, the village leader's wives, as I listened to her say, I want to follow Jesus, even though she knew that if her husband found out, she might be beaten badly, sent out of her home. Who am I? Who am I? As I was given the opportunity to, to teach for the first time, teach this little church in Tokal. It's the other village that we work in. We were there for the night for Good Friday. And as I was, for the first time that they'd ever been able to do it together on Good Friday and consider the work of Jesus Christ on the cross in light, uh, in, in unison with the voices of believers all around the world gathering together and celebrating and remembering the price paid for them. As I was given opportunity to teach these people that not only did he die, but that he rose. And to be able to do that, who am I? As I watched my teammates sharing the gospel and praying for people that they had no, no knowledge of before they showed up, they had no relationship with, they had nothing to gain from them, but they shared the gospel with them at, at great expense to themselves and difficulty and prayed that they would be able to believe, that people would come to know Jesus. As we together interacted in God's mission and seeing God glorified. Who am I? Who am I that he would use me for this? Who am I that he would call me to follow him? I know my sin to some degree. And I'm learning more and more every day. That it runs deeper than I first imagined. I'm amazed. I am in awe of a God who would call me. I'm amazed that I am in awe of a God who would call us. And this is not something I'm just pulling out of this text. This is the attitude of the early church. This is the attitude of the scriptures. Paul, you know, the super apostle, the one who wrote large chunks of scripture, the one who planted churches all over Asia Minor, who, who, who worked in the church in Rome. He wrote these words in Romans chapter 7, verse 24, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Now, it would be one thing if Paul had written these words shortly after coming to faith. It would be one thing if Paul was talking about his life before Christ. But in the context, that's not what he's talking about at all. He's talking about his life now. And, and, and this is at a point when, in which he has been following Jesus for about 20 years. A mature man of faith who has, by this point, been used of God to plant churches, to write Scripture. And yet he understands that he, apart from Christ, is wretched and unable to save himself. And this was no passing attitude. It's not something he grew beyond. As he wrote one of his final letters to, to a student of his, to one who he had uh, let, grown up in the faith, his name was Timothy. As he wrote his first letter to Timothy, about two years before he died, he wrote these words. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. 
Now, he's the one we emulate. He's the one that we want to be like. He's the one that we want opportunities like. He's the one that we would love to have the same power as. And yet he's saying, even at that point in his life, just a couple of years before he dies, after he's been a believer for some 25, maybe 30 years, he is saying, I am the most sinful of all sinners. We want so desperately to sugarcoat our problem. We want so desperately to ignore the reality of our issues. Our problem is not a physical poverty. Our problem is not physical illness. Although we may deal with those in this life, our chief problem is our sin. We are no better, no worthier of salvation than Matthew, a tax collector, or Paul, the chief among sinners. But it is vital. It is vital not just for the moment that we enter into salvation, that we understand this. It is vital for our life every day. Let me give you two reasons why. Until, first, until we are confronted with the reality of our sin. We cannot appreciate how special the gospel call of Jesus is. It's in confrontation. It's in that moment in which our sin is made known to us and in which we are able to see it and we are able to see it in light of how holy and righteous God is. This is where the gospel becomes beautiful. This is what makes the good news so good. It's not that you just barely missed out, you absolutely fell short. You absolutely deserve to be sent out from his presence. I do too. But this is why we are constantly reminding ourselves of the horrific yet victorious events of Good Friday and Easter morning. Because it's in his work, it's by his power that we are able to stand in his presence. Our sin is so real and so abhorrent to God. Yet his love for sinners is so abundant that Jesus was sent to die sacrificially that he might rise victoriously and that we could be called by him into salvation. We are sinners who need a Savior. Jesus didn't come to affirm the lifestyle of those who pretend they're good enough. I could put on a show for you. I can, I, can try to, I can try to impress you. I can, I can pretend in my own mind that I don't need a Savior, but that is a lie. Jesus did not come to affirm that lie. Jesus didn't come to affirm the lifestyle of those who, who think their performance is good enough to be called righteous. I'm afraid this is what the church is producing so often. People who come and they put on their Sunday go-to-church clothes and their Sunday go-to-church mask and they, and they come and they present the best of themselves that's still not good enough. And they have their list of Christian disciplines that if you, if you look into their life, they've got all these good things that they seem to be doing, but they're doing them in order to justify themselves in front of God. And it will never be enough. Jesus came. He says it himself. He says it himself. He came to call sinners, not the righteous, to repent. 
we are no worthier of salvation than Matthew or Paul. If we are following Jesus, if we are trusting Jesus, it is because he has called us out of our sin and into repentance. And that is worth celebrating. That is worth being in awe of. That is worth being amazed by. That a holy God would love a sinner such as you and me. and would pave our way that we might be with him. Matthew gets this. Completely understands it. Completely grasps hold of it in this moment. And what does he do? He, he, he puts on a party. He throws a party. He, he has a feast. But before he did that, he left behind the pursuit of wealth. What else would make him be a traitor to his people and take advantage of others? He loved money or he loved the things that money would give him. Maybe the things that we're pursuing are more noble. Maybe they would be more socially acceptable. But Matthew understood it, and he understood that there was nothing to pursue like Jesus. So he leaves behind the pursuit of wealth. He leaves behind the taking advantage of others for personal gain. And he throws a party, and he invites them in, and he serves them rather than take advantage of them. Listen, until we realize how desperately sinful we are, the gospel is always going to have a competition, is always going to have competition in our life. We are always going to be wrestling with priorities other than Jesus. There's always going to be something vying for position, for prominence in our life. There's, there's reasons why we struggle with the temptations we struggle with. There's reasons why the, we, we, we haven't put down the pursuit of wealth or the pursuit of power or the pursuit of acceptance and approval by others. There's a reason why we haven't put these things down. Because we haven't realized how desperately needy we were so that we can see the beauty of the gospel and let the gospel begin to eclipse all other things. When we realize how desperately undeserving we are, the gospel grows precious to us. It becomes beautiful before us. The world loses its luster. The gospel shines ever more brightly. When we identify with the likes of Matthew, a tax collector, and Paul, the foremost of sinners, we are able to see just how amazing Jesus' gospel call is. And that amazement and awe moves us to leave everything else behind and pursue it with our whole life. That's the first. There's... Another reason to remember that Jesus called you out of your sin and not some self-righteous or righteous self-sufficiency. Until we are confronted with the reality of our own sin, we will assume we deserve salvation and others don't. That's what's going on with the Pharisees. You see, Matthew understood his position. He understood his sinfulness. He understood how desperately he needed Jesus to call him. But these Pharisees were missing it. They were the pretenders and the performers of that day. And they believed that they were worthy of being in God's presence. They, they believed that they had earned their place there. They, they, they thought that when Jesus went to the party that Matthew had put on that, that was attended by other tax collectors and sinners, they, 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 they just couldn't believe it. They, they, they believed it was an offense. They were offended themselves by it. And so they began to try to sow seeds of discord among Jesus' people and Jesus' followers. But here's the, here's the irony of that whole situation. 
they thought Jesus began associating with sinners when he went to the party. Jesus began associating with sinners the moment he put on flesh to dwell among us. If Jesus hadn't associated with sinners, he couldn't have come. He couldn't have put on flesh. He couldn't have lived here. He, he, he couldn't have walked out this plan. He would have spent a life of solitude. He would have no followers at all. If Jesus hadn't associated with sinners, not only would he have not gone to this party, but he wouldn't have been able to go into their synagogues. If Jesus wasn't willing to associate with sinners, he wouldn't even be able to be present in our churches. Jesus hadn't associated with sinners, I couldn't be with him. And neither could you. See, until we realize how undeserving we are of our, of, of our salvation, of the, the call into salvation, we will be gatekeepers of sorts, and we will determine who gets the offer of salvation, and we will wait till, till somebody comes along that we think wants it or deserves it. The problem is that there is no such person. No one seeks God. No one is righteous. No, not one. That's Romans 3. None of us belong here. Except that he called us to be here. If he's called us, then he can call anyone. If he has saved us, if he saved me, if he has saved you, then he can save anyone. And when we realize how undeserving of the gospel we are, how undeserving we are, the, the, the gospel becomes our hope for everyone. That, that, that's the thing we believe in. That's the thing we present. That's the, that's the answer to their problem. When we realize that it's by the power of God in the gospel that we are given Life, that's when we begin offering it to others. And we quit giving them lists to live by and expectations to live up to. And we tell them about what Jesus has done for them in their place for their sin, and we believe it for ourselves as well. When we realize how undeserving we are, we will quit believing that if we can get sinners to be good, we can get them to be saved. That is so out of order. I had a friend who had a, this was back before I had left uh, uh, aviation maintenance. I had a friend, and he thought that he was doing these sinful people at our work. This is how he viewed them. He thought he was doing them a favor. So he puts a cuss jar on his, on his desk, and I don't know, he graded the cuss words. I think it was 25 cents for some words and 50 cents for other words. I don't, I don't know how he came up with that. And every time somebody would be in his office and they would cuss, he would, he would hold them accountable and make them put a quarter or a couple quarters in. And, and I confronted him about that, and I was like, what, what, what are you doing? And he brought me a, a Bible verse off of a calendar. It was taken out of context, so, so, so don't think this exists in the Bible for real. He said, this is what I'm doing. And he tried to explain to me that by getting them to be good, he might give them the opportunity to be saved. It doesn't happen that way. Jesus doesn't meet us when we've gotten cleaned up. Jesus meets us in the depths of our depravity, and he calls us into righteousness. He calls us into holiness. The, the, the call to, to holiness or striving for holiness does not precede Jesus' call. It happens as a result of Jesus' call. 
We strive for holiness not because we, we need it to, to, to maintain our position here or because that's what makes us d- d- deserve to be here. We strive for holiness because He called us to be here. We do what we do because of who He's made us to be. And when we realize how undeserving we are, we quit believing that if we can get sinners to be good, we can get them to be saved because it doesn't work that way. The gospel is their only hope. When we realize how undeserving we are, we will quit isolating ourselves from the world and begin engaging it. You know why it's so difficult for us to go into the world? Because we've forgotten that Jesus is the one that keeps us clean. That we think that even though now, okay, now I'm a believer and I'm inside this life and then, then, now all of a sudden I've got to keep myself safe. I've got to cordon, my, cordon myself off from, from these sinful people because if they bump my elbow, then I must be as dirty as they are. If I go to the places that they go, then I will be as dirty as they are. But that's not what we see Jesus doing. That's what, not what we see Matthew doing. He threw a party and who did he invite? Not the religious people. Sinners and tax collectors. When we realize how undeserving we are already, we will quit isolating ourselves from the world and we will begin engaging it. It is vital that we understand our sin. It is vital that we understand our sin so that we can see the beauty, the, 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 the preciousness of Jesus' gospel call and so that we, can, that, that we can no longer wait for sinners to come to Jesus but that we can go to them. When we go, we keep in mind why Jesus went. It isn't intended just to partake in the parties. He partook. He was accused of being a drunk and a a glutton. But it wasn't about a question of whether he was partaking or whether he was going to the parties. The, The question is, what was he doing while he was there? He said it himself. He came to call sinners to repentance. So now, because of the gospel, we can quit pretending and performing and begin trusting that in Christ we are saved from our sin. Because the intent of this message is not to heap on you a a weight of guilt. I'm not here to simply say, oh, you're a horrible person. Please don't hear that. That is not my heart. But we together are desperately depraved We have no power to save ourselves. But Jesus has come and Jesus has called us into repentance. And that call, that work that he has done on our behalf, in our place, for our sins, that is our hope, that is our help. Not just for us, but for everyone else we know. So we can take off our masks. We, we can quit putting on a show. We quit carrying the weight of the lies that we tell people to try to impress them. We can now walk in repentance. We can turn from the sin and, and all that this world tempts us with in order that we might follow Jesus. Not because we've earned our place here, but because Jesus Christ calls us here. We can go into a sinful world. And we can offer a real hope and a real help for a real problem. His name is Jesus. Let's pray. Father, 
It is difficult to consider the depths of our sinfulness. It's difficult to confess that we are powerless to help ourselves. It is difficult to consider the the realities of what we deserve and what we have earned. It is difficult to think that we can't measure up, that we can't earn our place. But, oh, Father, we are grateful that you have loved sinners like us. That you have provided for sinners like us through your son, Jesus. And I would ask that in this moment, that rather than being, uh, than being given guilt from some preacher, that, Father, that your spirit would convict us and at the same time encourage us that we have you that we have been given you, that there's nothing in this life for us that, that trumps you. Would you encourage us? Would you, would you fill us with awe and amazement? Would you fill us with hope? Would you fill us with encouragement? Father, would you lead us to make sure that this isn't just known by us, but that it's known by everyone we know. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.